This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Screen Talk is now available on iTunes. You can head there to subscribe to the show and leave a review to let us know what you think. You can also reach us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Welcome, everybody, to Screen Talk, IndieWire's podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic of IndieWire, and I'm joined, as always, by Ann Thompson. We're both in Telluride for the film festival, and while some people are stepping out of screenings and, you know, exploring the, the mountainside, going on long hikes, or maybe even discovering the uh, marijuana facilities that they now have in town, we've decided to talk about movies, because that's the kind of people we are. So uh, it's been a dense weekend, as always, and uh, we, uh, we've seen a lot of stuff over the course of 72 hours or so, and there's still another day and a half or so to go. But most of the big stuff, so to speak, has screened. And it, it, what's always interesting to me about Telluride, this is my third year going, is that you know, you find out the official lineup a day early, and then there are some unknown variables and some known variables, but within a very short time span, the way that we talk about these movies tends to change uh, pretty dramatically. Um, I mean, I even felt like yesterday when I saw Birdman, the Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu film, now, this was a movie that got rave reviews out of Venice, and everybody said, you know, Michael Keaton is amazing in it. But when it played here in Telluride, and Inuritu himself gave this really dramatic introduction about it was good, you know, yeah. turning fifty and having How this sort being of creative, very crisis. autobiographical, yeah, yeah. And 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 then and then closing by saying, you know, Telluride is cinema heaven, and the the crowd was so with him. You know, it felt like, okay, now this is real. Now this movie is, is something that people are going to be talking about as a very special fall season experience. And, you know, I love... Oh, that's absolutely true. It's a remarkable movie. I mean, it, not everybody is going to be over the moon about it. You can nitpick certain aspects of it. But this simulated long-take film that's sort of this backstage uh, tale of, of this Keaton character, you know, sort of struggling with his his past fame and, and trying to regain some of that. Uh, it, it registers on a number of levels, partly because it's just so weird and unpredictable in a way that you usually don't see with films on that scale. I mean, I went to... That's what's to... so great about it. It reminds me in a funny way of the kind of um, bravura, um, almost experimental filmmaking that was was practiced by... Um, 
his colleagues, um, uh, especially Alfonso Cuaron, I mean, Children of Men or, or Gravity, um, there's a, there's a, what he was talking about in that introduction was um, the filmmaker rediscovering his own mojo and, and trying to explore what, you know, the role of, of the ego is in, 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 uh, for an artist. And, and so he's really using the Michael Keaton character um, almost, you know, he's, it's not that he, he definitely identifies with him, but he's using him to show uh, what, what some of the process of what he went through, uh, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to regain his mojo. And he, and, and obviously Inaritu did. And I found it exhilarating. Um, it would have been fun in a way to see the movie without knowing in advance about the structure of it. Uh, he's not giving away how many takes there are. I interviewed him today. Um, he's not giving away how many takes there are or how many uh, sequences there are or the details of how he hides the the cuts between, you know, the shots and everything. But I was distracted by that. I was looking for that. I was well, trying to figure it out. Well, but I have to say one thing about that is you can't, it would, it's incredibly hard to spoil this movie because so many bizarre things happen. I mean, I will tell you that in the first shot, something that seems almost supernatural is taking place. That doesn't mean that this is a fantasy film per se. I mean, it's possible that it, the entire thing takes place in this guy's mind, which is also not a spoiler because everything about the movie is very much open to analysis. And so I think that that's what's fascinating about it is that on the one hand, it's a very sharp critique of the state of the industry. I mean, they name Very drop, much so, from you know, superheroes yeah. to, uh, you know, uh, crazy actors. Yeah, and yet it's also something... That, that, that is aspiring to a different kind of cinema than anything made within those constraints. I mean, we both went to a dinner afterwards hosted by Sony Pictures Classics, and I, I mean, I was seated next to Vim Vendors, who's at the festival with his documentary, The Star of the Earth, and he we was... We both ended up around. sitting with him at some right. point during the evening. Vim was really making the rounds. Mike Lee just kind of stayed put. It was an interesting contrast. But, I, but then I ended up talking a little bit to Steve Carell at another table because Sony is also releasing Foxcatcher, and, and he's super excited to see this movie. I think more for the the kind of showbiz side of it than the the kind of cinematic aspects of it. And I well, think one that of the things I realized when I spoke to Inaritu today, which I hadn't quite you know fully grasped. Of course, it's it has to be true. Is that if you do these very long takes, uh, and if the movie is really almost let's say for the sake of argument that it's a, a probably around 12 of them. Uh, that was what one person counted. Chris Tapley counted 12. Um, let's say that's true. Um, you, you, the actors have to be incredibly precise and get everything right. And if they make a mistake, if anybody on the entire team makes a mistake, so there's this extraordinary energy created along with the drumming uh, score, which creates a, a very percussive kind of um, energy as well that helps to to uh, build tension and dissipate it. And it, it's a, it's a fascinating um, uh, kind of rhythmic uh, filmmaking that was truly risk, risky and, and scary and, and paid off handsomely, in my view. And it's another testament, I think, just more on the industry side of things, to what Fox Searchlight seems increasingly better at doing than a lot of other people, which is finding these kind of weirder, more difficult projects and, and giving them sort of the room to become the 
great movies they have the potential to be. I mean, last year at Telluride, they were here with 12 Years a Slave. Now, I bring them up because there's an interesting contrast between that Searchlight movie and another one which we saw on the first day of the festival, uh, which was Wild, John Mark Vallee's film about uh, this woman uh, who hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, played by Reese Witherspoon. And uh, that was very much a, a Telluride kind of movie. I think it played well for that crowd for obvious reasons, hiking through the wilderness and so forth. And I think Reese Witherspoon is really great in it. I was disappointed because in an environment like this, I'm looking for movies that really excite me. And this movie is very much a traditional sentimental story of a woman sort of dealing with a lot of personal issues and, and kind of, you know, finding catharsis in nature and so forth. And so I was really let down by it. But I think you were a bigger fan. I liked it a lot more. Now, I didn't read the book, and I'm actually curious to read the book now. Why? Because um, Oprah was at the screening? <laughs> was she? She was there. I mean, the, the Wild was an Oprah Book Month 2.0 selection, so it's already got that stamp of approval from the. From is the she's day. here at the festival? Well, she was at, there on the first day. I don't know how long. I she did not around. see. Was she at the patron brunch? She. I don't know if she made it to the brunch. No, I didn't see her so there. Crowded, I did not but, know that. Nope, All right. Well, the there. thing uh, I think I think what's interesting about Wild is that it I, it does dis apparently the book itself was um, kind of a fifty-fifty male-female um, appeal book. It was not just read by women, and anybody could have gone through this experience, you know, on the trail. And the fact that she was a woman, um, you know, was an extraordinary thing because so few women do it. I think this was incredibly hard to do. I think the challenge of, of taking this woman's memories while she's hiking and creating some kind of cohesive narrative through flashbacks, where the flashbacks are super intensely emotional, and then the, the actual hiking is rather monotonous, except for various incidents along the way. I give uh, Jean-Marc Vallée a lot of points, A, for not turning it into a Hollywood glitz movie with a movie star, even though Reese Witherspoon is a movie star. She doesn't give uh, a big Hollywood glossy performance at all no makeup at all very natural the whole movie is very naturalistic and and reasonably uh restrained and uh i i give it a lot of points uh for that and i was very moved by it it's a mother-daughter story uh laura dern is really good uh so is reese witherspoon um so um you know i think the movie will actually do well with the public i think it's going to be um, a popular film um, whether it does well with the academies and other matter because they tend to go. And of course, this is part of what's going on here at Telluride, which is the whole issue of Oscars and predictions. And, All right, hang and, on, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have to yeah, talk about yeah, yeah. things. Well, anyway, first. so on that front, uh, we'll see, you know, we'll see where it ends well, up. Well, it was funny for me. I mean, my, I actually agree with somebody who was happened to be in the gondola leaving the theater with me afterwards who said that, you know, the, the flashbacks element of this movie are feel a little bit extraneous, not to say that, you know, the story of this woman who, you know, she lost her mother to cancer and then went in this downward spiral where she became a heroin addict and had a lot of promiscuous sex and so forth. You know, not to say that that story doesn't resonate emotionally, but that it, it, in, in cinematic terms, it's almost like 
they're not trusting the material to speak for itself. Like with All is Lost, you know, which is maybe the, the more extreme counterexample, you have Robert Redford with no name or no backstory, and yet the emotion resonates. And so this movie is a little bit more traditional in the sense that it gives you a lot of backstory, and, and that to me is kind of what held it back from being as, as sort of uh, more of a experience as I'd like it to, to have been. And I think that's maybe the challenge that... that this movie will I face. think it would have been such a traditional narrative, though, to have just gone, okay, here she is, her mother growing up. You know, it would have been like so many other stories. I, I think this was actually a more radical approach. Yeah, I would, I would say it's, it's one step beyond that. It's, it's, it's better than it, than certain possible movies if you start to imagine those things. But I'm there just could have, it could have gone wrong in so many ways. And when you describe it as sentimental, I think, I think there's some moving moments, uh, very much having to do. With with her her relationship to her mother, but but it it's um, it is it, it's pretty it's a pretty tough tough go. I, I don't see it as 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 being sentimental at all. No, it's I when I say sentimental and I, and I'm not uh, that cynical. I mean I, I think the the sentimental elements that that maybe rubbed me the wrong way were ones that just felt a little too pat, and those mainly did have to do with the scenes that weren't on the trail. Um, as much as they may have worked in their own context. But, you know, we, we'll have plenty of time to go back and forth on this particular movie. Another one that has garnered similar kinds of, you know, kind of middle-of-the-road reactions, but also some uh, more positive ones, I would say, is uh, The Imitation Game, which screened also on Friday shortly after Wild. So we got a whole lot of stuff on that first day there. Now, this is a movie with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Alan Turing, who was this uh, scientist uh, who and was employed by the uh, British uh, government during World War II uh, to uh, basically crack the Nazi code. And this was information that was not revealed for decades. Uh, and he lived a very interesting life as this closeted homosexual. And all that stuff comes into play over the course of the movie. Um, my, my experience with The Imitation Game, uh, I, we had uh, somebody else review it. But w- when I saw it, I, I totally get why people responded well to it. But uh, this particular movie, I don't, I don't have a problem with it per se. I just feel, I felt as though when I was watching it, like it wasn't giving me anything particularly exciting outside of Cumberbatch himself. It's an amazing performance, I think. It's the best thing that he, I've seen him do so far. And the movie never quite gets up to that same level because it's, the, the story is very much this contained piece about these guys trying to crack the code and the sort of commitment and the, the role that... Um, uh, this this woman plays in in, in his life, um, and uh, but 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 I but I do think that you know what's interesting about it is that people were drawing comparisons to when the King's Speech was here a few years ago, and that got a really enthusiastic reaction, um, and that that was another movie about this sort of reluctant person kind of rising to a certain kind of task and, and becoming a, a, a hero of sorts. So, All right. So this is why Imitation Game is being compared to King's Speech. It's because it's the Weinstein cow. It's being introduced here and getting a big reaction from, from, from the uh, Oscar Corps. Um, and uh, it's a British movie with a great big performance, as you say, uh, at the center of it. But I think the imitation game is more than you're suggesting. Now, is it a conventionally structured movie, um, you know, that's written, you know, a certain way? Yeah, well, maybe. Is, is there anything superbly uh, uh, innovative about the direction? I actually think Martin Tilden from Nor- Norway, who's, who's, a, who's, who's a good filmmaker, did a good job. I think the real, I think the real, uh, the reason 
reason the movie steps above and becomes an Oscar contender is because it's history that many of us did not know because it was hidden for so long. A, a, a character in World War II world history who was a pivotal character who who helped uh, the Allies to win the war. I mean, it, it literally, single-handedly, and um, in a way that I did not realize ever. Sure, um, and I, I, I knew totally about code cracking, but sure. this was I, a revelation to yeah, me. And, and, and then, above and beyond that, the whole issue of his homosexuality, how he was treated as a homosexual and and treated badly, and 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 how he was arrested, and and all of that, and all of the levels of the spying that was going on. There's a lot going on at once, which is. I would suggest to you much more difficult to pull off than than the people who are suggesting this is just some kind of, you know, mainstream movie. Why are they calling it mainstream? They're calling it mainstream because it's going to play really well with audiences because it's very well made. I'm not faulting the movie for that either. I mean, I I enjoyed it to a certain degree, but what I think the there's an important distinction here between learning about Turing is this fascinating character who had to deal with a tremendous amount of pressure from the time he was coming out of and also pushing against sort of the, the limitations of the military at the time to, to realize, you know, how, how brilliant he was. That comes through in the movie to oh, some degree. there's a whole other but, aspect of him as an Asperger kind of guy also. Right. And, and again, that goes back to And being to an the, outsider. But that so goes on. back to the performance. I think what's what's notable about this movie is that it draws in such a great subject and it's based on a book which obviously delivers a similar kind of uh you know hey you didn't know this sort of thing about this guy you know it it does justice to that story well enough to to make it such compelling material that i think you're right it, it could do very well um but but i don't think that it's a major achievement as as a movie as a whole i think that that it's really it's just it's the the core of this story that that's exciting to people and the fact that they got such a great actor to to inherit, to to play this role but well, also, again, Karen Knightley is very good. Karen Knightley, um, right. And, I, I and it's an interesting role as a woman being treated badly yeah. uh, in a very sexist uh, way uh, at the time and, and the only person that really could connect with him and as two outsiders in a, in, a, in, a, in a white male world, if you like. Right. So we've talked about Birdman Wild and Imitation Game. You started to get into the Oscar stuff before, but I wanted to make sure we laid out some of the cards first. Uh, it, it's interesting because... At the opening uh, press briefing, I asked uh, the festival directors, Julie Hunsinger and, and Tom Luddy, about kind of the, the narrative that this festival plays a role in Oscar season. And, of course, they tried to work around that, saying we sort of ignore that. Maybe some people bring things to us that, you know, they, they want to uh, kind of use us in that particular way. But obviously, Telluride plays a significant role in award season. And it seems to me like we now have a more sophisticated understanding of some of the pieces in play. Um, oh, we definitely do. And, and I think that the reason that Sony Pictures Classics and Thought Searchlight and Weinstein Co. and Roadside Attractions, who came here with uh, the Homesman, they, they have hopes for their tributee, Hillary Swank, um, which may or may not be realized. Um, and uh, but the reason they all come is because uh, there, this this festival does have a direct impact on the academy. There are a lot of members here, um, and they have they have an they had an academy party here for for all the members and so forth. The, the Cheryl Boone Isaacs and Tenny Maladonian from the academy came uh, to tell your ride, um, and it, it just it just 
works well for them to get the buzz started. I, I think the sad uh, commentary on on the uh, the kind of competition with with Toronto and the gauntlet that was thrown down by Toronto is is that really Toronto has become an acquisitions festival, and New York and Telluride and, and Venice have have really uh, stolen some of their thunder uh, on the on the Oscar front, and and it really works better as a launch pad for fall releases in a marketing and publicity way and for building buzz that's toronto's role definitely um and getting the audience reaction and everything but telluride is having a huge impact on the oscar race now well and also what's interesting has about for several it, years I mean, it's like, there's nothing new about this yeah no there's nothing new i think what, what's interesting though obviously and we've talked about this before is that you know toronto kind of tried to to compromise Telluride's exclusivity to some degree by saying, you know, movies that played at Telluride this weekend or this weekend could not play opening weekend at Toronto. But in terms of how that affects Oscar season, clearly nothing has changed. You know, I mean, the Telluride has a certain kind of influence that Toronto can't touch. And like you said, I mean, part of, part of it is that, um, that, you know, the, the distributors go to Toronto in almost like in a more mechanical way to scout for stuff. Whereas Telluride has this relaxed vibe. Like you just kind of stumbled into somebody's backyard and they happen to have VIP access. So all these amazing people are there and all these great movies are there. Uh, but what's interesting about it is that it does allow you also from an award season perspective to magnify, you know, really what, what seems like, could happen something that could really happen in the next couple of weeks couple of months as things gain buzz because there are just fewer films that seem like they could you know you could really just focus on the stuff that might be on the race um that to me it well, seems and like then there's a gap there's a gap between now and and i mean there may be a couple more things in toronto but really i think we have seen the main films i think i think the big gap is going to be you know between now and when all those uh late year releases come out that those but are the big unknowns let's say yeah. We so can... what? But uh, all right. So so basically, we have Cumberbatch now and Michael Keaton uh, duking it out for best actor. Well, don't um, forget about Steve Carell, who's being submitted as a best actor for Foxcatcher. I mean, those three certainly. And it's a fascinating. I would put the other two ahead of him, though. Most likely, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of wish he was submitted as a supporting actor, but um, you know, no, he's the lead. I think uh, definitely. But I I, uh, I believe they're also putting Channing Tatum in the lead, which I question. It's because I choice. I think that Ruffalo is being put in supporting and that's appropriate, but I would have put Channing in supporting it as well. Well, so so Foxcatcher's in the race. Uh, Foxcatcher is definitely in the race. That's a case where, in a funny way, you know, it's old news in the sense that it already played Can and and you know Bennett Miller already won you know the director prize right. and so forth. Uh, but but it, this is again about building the fall buzz right. and Foxcatcher. So it's there isn't that sense of discovery for us, but there are a lot of other people who weren't in Can who are seeing Foxcatcher sure. for the first time, and it played it played. Well here it did it and, and you know so did birdman which again opened venice but when it showed still, up it's here, still new yeah. yeah so we've got foxcatcher we've got birdman uh it seems like maybe boyhood is still in the race obviously not totally. a ride. uh but that's those three as sort of like best picture top-notch best picture possibilities it's a pretty fascinating breakdown i mean last year i felt like the only movie I personally was really excited about was actually 12 Years a Slave. This seems like three movies that are very different, that speak to very different sensibilities, that are all also very much 
accomplished filmmaking then that's exciting to me i don't know and the other thing that's interesting about this too is that the pattern has emerged over the last few years as as hollywood is going through this sort of strange shaking out whatever you want to call it um where the studios are simply not that invested in making dramas or making you know important low budget films uh modest budget films um and sometimes gravity or argo gets in there but uh the the truth is um you know that that we have uh, megan ellison making Foxcatcher uh possible when other people weren't interested in, in in supporting that film and and we have um and she really bailed out the movie you know uh Bennett Miller gets emotional about that. Um, and it's not and the first time. I mean, she's, she's been doing this for the last couple She's been years. doing it for Paul Thomas Anderson, and she's been doing it for uh, David O. Russell. And so she really is uh, being perceived right now by actors and filmmakers' talent across the board as this uh, sort of patron saint. And Megan uh, Ellison made her first trip to Telluride this year. Yes, so that she's also here. And she's going to the movies. She's yeah. actually, she just tweeted a long list of, of movies that, that she's that she's seen and uh i think she deserves a great deal of of credit she gave bennett miller uh an extension on his film you know and gave him some time uh, to work in the editing room and really find the final version of the film that he wanted and sony pictures classics of course went along with that as well but um you know, so the, the other wild is 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 very much uh, of an independent film, and 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 Searchlight came in, you know, obviously, and and so uh, uh, Birdman two had to raise funding from multiple sources, and it was difficult. It was not easy, uh, and then Searchlight came in. Uh, so you know, these these are seems there's always a story behind these filmmakers having to just kill themselves uh, to get these films made. Right. I mean, it is kind of interesting. I mean, it's not so much about Hollywood anymore in terms of how this race shakes down. It's about how do people kind of hover around that arena and, and work with some of the ingredients that it has available. And, you know, just see who's around the dinner table. I'll tell you, right, you can kind of see that. There's this intermingling of, of the establishment and people who, who kind of work outside of the system. And that's that's exciting. I mean, I feel like we're going to have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in the coming months. Um, well, one of the things that I do find moving about Telluride is the idea that that there's a kind of shared, you know, this is part of what Inuritu and, and Ken Burns, who introduces the films, always says the same thing. You know, there's this kind of, uh, we're all part of this. They play to the to the audience a little bit, but uh, but yeah, but it's true. I think I think a lot of the people who come here and come back and return the Werner Herzogs and Vim Vendors, and I loved the idea that Vim Vendors was leaving that dinner to go have dinner with his pu- his butt. Werner and Volker Schlondor, right. the three of them, for the first the, time, the, the three surviving had German dinner. New Wave guys. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. They have the three German New Wave guys who are still around, obviously not Fassbender, although they were showing one of his films here, so he is present in another way. You know, it's um, it's kind of fascinating to see that presence here and, and just sort of, you know, a part of film culture still. I mean, I, I sat behind Werner Herzog today while watching Ramin Barani's new film, and, you know, he was gesturing to the slides from his old films because we were in the Werner Herzog theater, and there were they, there's a slideshow that plays before the film start of, of other movies he's done. He started talking about Land of Silence and Darkness and almost getting blown up in Kuwait, and I was like, 
Telluride is fucking amazing. You know? It sure is. Well, I, mean, I talked to Vin Benders, and then I saw his film, which I had missed um, at Cannes. I'd heard it was good. Um, and I have to say, Salt of the Earth blew me away. It is so remarkable because of, I thought, okay, it's about this Brazilian uh, famous. We've, we've all seen his pictures, uh, photographer. Uh, let's see if we can do it. His name is, is, is Salgado. Um, and, and he, and many books of his photos, you've seen the ones of, of the pictures uh, in the gold mines with the, you know, thousands and thousands of people carrying uh, bags up and down those ladders and those pits, uh, you know, but he's been all over the world and, and, as the movie goes on, the, the photos are just stunning. And he's described, you know, you get his life, you get the stories behind the photos. But as the, as time goes on, you get this extraordinary accumulation and you realize that this man has witnessed over these decades, he's seen a totality of, 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 experiences in this world, horrifying, horrible examples of man's inhumanity to man that very few single people have experienced. Even the, the journalists that, that, you know, the, the, the Sebastian Youngers and Tim Hetherington's of the world have gone to so many war fronts, you know, they haven't seen all that he has seen. Right. And, and yet with great beauty, uh, I was very, very moved by this. Well, you know, it's interesting hearing you talk about it. I haven't seen it yet, but I I saw a documentary today that, that has a similar kind of appeal and that's the look of silence, which is Joshua Oppenheimer's follow up to the act of killing. It's really remarkable and it's not going to come out into theaters until next year. Draft House films is releasing it as they did his previous film, but it, it takes the opposite approach of act of killing which, you know, kind of empowered in this very daring, almost subversive way, these uh, gangsters who were responsible for the Indonesian genocide in the 1960s. This one is about an optometrist whose brother was killed during that genocide who confronts people uh, who were responsible for that torturing in a very quiet, um, intellectual way. Uh, as Oppenheimer's camera looks on. And, you know, there is a transgressive quality to it because this man is putting his life in danger by confronting these people because a lot of them are still in power. And and just by virtue of completing the movie, he may be compromising his safety and the safety of his family, which we see in the film. Yet there is something remarkable about it because he's not a journalist. He's just this, this humble person with a direct relationship to these travesties who has honest questions. And so he's sort of empowered in a certain way to get real with these people and, and really ask them, you know, how can you say that what you did was correct? And as Oppenheimer pointed out in this remarkable Q&A, moderated by Werner Herzog, of course, the guy kind of fails. He doesn't get a good answer out of these people in the movie, and yet because the movie is complete, when it gets out there, it will probably feed a conversation, as Act of Killing did in Indonesia, about the fact that these were war crimes and that they need to be addressed. And so it, seeing Isn't that movie it? here, I just could tell something was starting to happen, and I think it'll be fascinating to watch it unfold. Although he did, what he did was to shoot those two films in sequence in Indonesia, knowing that he couldn't go back to Indonesia once the first film was 
released, right. so he can't go back to Indonesia. That's right. But but uh, the subject of the film is in Telluride right now and, and plans to go home. So you know, hopefully. Oh, that is fascinating. You know, it's it's, That's it's they, that relates to Rosewater, which is a similar story. The John Stewart film, his first film, um, starring uh, Gael Garcia Bernal, which is interesting because you have a Mexican actor playing an Iranian journalist who uh, thought he knew where the lines of demarcation were in 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 covering Iran and ended up making a mistake, you know, making a few mistakes and ended up in prison for a long, long time. Uh, and it, and it's, um, it's a story I was really glad to see. Uh, uh, very solid, but not, you know, this is not a film that's going to be in the, in the Oscar conversation, nor, nor should it be. It, it, it's not required that all these films be in that conversation, but uh, it's well worth seeing. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Telluride does tend to attract these movies that are kind of fraught with anger about, you know, problems in the world. I mean, even last night I saw the sneak peek of, of this film Escobar, Paradise Lost, with Benicio Del Toro and Josh Hutcherson, where Del Toro plays Pablo Escobar. And J- Hutcherson is this Canadian guy who, who's dating Escobar's niece and ends up uh, falling in with the wrong crowd and then running for, away for his life. You know, and it was like kind of a B-movie in certain ways, but it was so suspenseful that it really made the uh, kind of the problems of, of, you know, the drug cartel come to life in a way that I think, you know, it made sense for the, to have it at this kind of festival where people want to get, you know, sort of riled up with ideas. You know, it's not a festival necessarily for genre films or for, or for other certain kinds of boundary-pushing films, but for, for movies that, you know, create conversations. I, Ramin Barani's 99 Homes, which I mentioned earlier, uh, is, is another film that, that does that with Michael Shannon and Andrew Garfield, and it's kind of based around the 2008 housing crisis. So all throughout this festival, I mean, it really seems like it's, it's on the one hand, it's a festival for people who love cinema. On the other hand, it's a, festi- it's a festival that kind of drives Oscars and has this industrial function. But I think in a bigger sense, it's a festival that really wants to create dialogue, and it's such a great place to have that dialogue that, that it just, uh, the synthesis is, is very clear when you're walking around this festival and seeing movies and talking about them and so forth. No, it was really it was really fun to go from from the Sony picture. You know, I, I ended up talking to the director of Leviathan, you know, about whether or not his film was going to be submitted for the Oscar from Russia. I ended up talking to the director of Wild Tales, which I could think arguably was probably the, one of the most popular films shown at this festival, just That's in terms so of much sheer fun. entertainment. You yeah. know, just it's going to be a big hit uh, when it when it's released, and that will be the Argentinian submission on all likelihood. Um, you know, Mommy is probably going to be, that's the Xavier Dolan film that was in uh, Cannes. That'll probably be the Canadian submission uh, for the Oscar. Cannes is is the, is the defining, uh, in many ways, the defining festival for whether these films become uh, contenders uh, and of you know, course submitted the films, by their country. And, of course, the films you just mentioned are Sony Pictures Classics films. Which All of like them. Well. <laughs> I want to make sure that we plug something that's not a Sony Classics film, because there, there are a lot of them here. Uh, one documentary that I saw that I found surprisingly just really touching and you know I'm not as you know the 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 biggest softy You're not the in moist the behind the ears <laughs> exactly yeah. but but it was a movie that I thought was very rich with ideas and delivered in a very sweet fashion and um that Seymour an introduction a relation to the J.D. Salinger short story 
Uh, it's Ethan Hawke's first documentary that he directed, and it's about this man, Seymour Bernstein, who's a piano teacher on the Upper West Side, has lived in the same apartment for almost 60 years. And in the 60s, he was sort of uh, was considered to be uh, one of the great young pianists. Uh, he got all these rave reviews uh, in the Times and so forth, played at Alice Tully Hall, and realized that he found the commercial world too corrupt, not to mention that he had stage fright, um, and he turned his back on it. But so, so Hawk is actually in the film very briefly and stages uh, this man's sort of insight as, as a solution to Hawk's own creative crisis about, you know, what are we doing outside of chasing money and fame and so forth. And so in that respect, it actually felt like the perfect movie to kind of epitomize the Telluride conversation. I mean, it is a movie, or it is a, excuse me, it is a festival that deals with, um, you know, kind of the lure of fame and, and, and publicity and so forth. And yet at the same time, I think, you know, we're forced into a conversation about, you know, what else is there outside of that? And and this movie taps into it purely through the way that this man talks um, in our next play in Toronto. And despite Hawk's celebrity, I think, it, you know, it's a hard movie to kind of get exposure. So I hope that uh, people track it down and, and look for it because Sundance Selects will be releasing it in the coming months. Yes, I went from the Sony uh, dinner to the IFC dinner, and I got to talk to Ethan for a little while. Um, he's got Boyhood, which is one thing, and he's got, um, I think it's called, the, is it is it The Good Lie? Is that the name of his other right, film? Right, the Andrew Nichols film that's yeah. in Toronto. So that's coming up in uh, in Toronto, um, and he's he's got a lot going on, so I'll talk to him in Toronto. Right, so I guess, you know, that kind of brings us to next weekend. We'll be in diving straight into you know whatever that that giant beast of films up north will amount to um i mean i, I haven't had ch a chance to dread it much less figure out my schedule but i'm sure we'll have plenty no of me neither and it's a little scary i have to say it's it's a big beast and i've got to uh i've got to figure it you know you can go to the industry screenings or you can go to the openings where they have q and a's or, or but you have to get tickets to those and you know it's it, there's many many dinners and i'm not complaining it's a lot of fun I think they really need to take a cue from Telluride and add a couple marijuana stores, you know. It's just too much I do know one, a few people who went to see Apocalypse Now, the restored DCP, uh, having eaten a pot brownie. Yeah, no, there's a whole new layer to Telluride now. I mean, you see people on the street, you just don't know, you know, are they watching movies <laughs> on, as normal people or are they watching movies in Telluride mode, you know. I hope uh, High Times, you know, sends a correspondent out here because uh, – there's a whole new level of, of appeal. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't go too deep down that pathway because uh, we've been enjoying movies sober and, and it's been a great festival. So, uh, and thanks for making time. I will see Thank you, you soon. And Alrighty. let's uh, enjoy the next couple of days. The table. I was keeping my hands to myself. Only, only as long as I was able. When she left it's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today 
at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.